Luke 15, I'm going to read verses 11 through 24. This is um, the first half of this story. I encourage you to read the rest of it. We're not going to have time to look at all of it today, but I encourage you to read it. Jesus is speaking. He's telling a story. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, this is his repentance moment. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Some of you have heard of Louis Zamperini. Uh, You've watched the movie Unbroken or read the book. He was a lieutenant in the Army Air Corps in the Second World War, uh, serving on a as a bombardier when his plane was hit and uh, badly damaged. The plane managed to make it back to base, but since it was no longer flight worthy, Louis was assigned to another plane and another mission to search for uh, a pilot and his crew that had gone down in the Pacific. But during the search, their plane developed difficulties, mechanical difficulties, and it crashed into the ocean, killing eight of the 11 crew, somewhere about 800 miles south of Hawaii. Uh, Louis and two other guys survived, and they spent 47 days at sea living off the rainwater they could collect, uh, whatever fish or birds that they could catch. They fought off sharks. They were strafed more than once by Japanese planes, and one of the three of them succumbed to his, his illness, starvation, and he died. When they finally reached land, they were immediately captured by the Japanese, sent to a prison camp. Later, they were transferred to another camp where one particular guard treated them sadistically. They were tortured repeatedly. The army assumed Lieutenant Zamperini died in the crash and listed him as KIA, and President Roosevelt sent his parents a letter of condolence. Imagine how his family felt when later they learned he was alive when he returned home and they saw him again. Being lost at sea wasn't the first time Zamperini was lost. When he was a kid, a teenager, he was constantly getting in fights, and he was stealing, and he was drinking. And one day after a fight with his parents, he told them he was leaving, and his parents pleaded with him not to go, but he refused. And so his mom made him a sandwich and brought it to him with tears in his eyes so he could take it with him, and his dad gave him two dollars. It was during the Depression. It was probably all the money that he had. And he left. 
He hopped a train, nearly died in the boxcar after he got locked inside in sweltering heat. Uh, when he was discovered, the railroad found him. They, they ran him off at gunpoint, but he had nowhere to go. So he sat down in the rail yard, dirty, bruised, wet, with nothing to eat but a can of beans he had stolen. And while he was sitting there, he watched a passenger train go by, and he could see people sitting at tables with tablecloths and crystal stemware, eating, laughing. In that moment, he remembered his mom and her tears as she gave him that sandwich, and his dad as he reached into his wallet and gave him his money. And he stood up and he headed home. He had a repentance moment. That is a modern and true life retelling of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Better, the parable of the lost sons, because both sons in this story are lost. Or better yet, the parable of the loving father. It's the crown of Jesus' 37 parables. And it, what it does is powerfully portray what the God and Father of our Lord Jesus is really like. When Jesus told this masterpiece of a story, he was speaking to people who lived in a society where everyone was assigned a status. Who's your dad? Where do you work? What school do you go to? What's your annual income? What are your assets? How many languages do you speak? And especially, what are your religious credentials? Based on those particulars, we're assigning you fourth level, E-flight, 64th position. That's who you are. That's who you are. Of course, people who were assigned to D-flight looked down on those in E-flight, and in turn were looked down on those who were in C-flight, and so forth and so forth. Looking down on people, especially people who didn't measure up on the religion scale, was practically a matter of duty. And since we assume that God is like we are, people took for granted that God did the same thing. He looks down on people. And then came Jesus. He not only didn't look down on people at the lower end of the scale, he got rid of the scale, threw it out. In a society where even little children could distinguish between the reputable and the disreputable, Jesus' disregard for those distinctions was scandalous. He took people in while other religious leaders shut them out and thought that they were doing the right thing. What accounts for the difference? The reason Jesus and the religious leaders treated people differently is that they believed radically different things about God. Beliefs have consequences. What you believe matters. The Pharisees believed God didn't want these people. He didn't like them. They thought God considered them to be a kind of infection. And so they treated them that way. Jesus believed that God wanted these people, that he loved them and considered them to be a kind of treasure. And so he treated them that way. That's why Jesus told the stories in Luke 15. He wanted people to know, you have to go back to verses 1 and 2 to understand this, but he wanted people to know what his father is really like. He loves people, even after they've messed up. He wants them, even when they don't want him. And if they come to him, even if it's only because they're cold and hungry and miserable, he'll take them in and do it in a heartbeat. That's what the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is really like. 
Jesus tells three stories in Luke 15. First is about a guy who has one of a hundred sheep. He's a shepherd. He has one of a hundred sheep wander off. Still got 99, but he can't stand to lose that one. So he goes after it. And when he finds it, he throws a party. The second story is about a woman who has 10 denarii. Uh, A denarii was worth one day's wages. And she loses one of them. Now, she's still got nine, but she can't stand to lose that one. So she goes off looking for it until she finds it. And when she does, she throws a party. The third story, the jewel in the crown, is about a dad who has two sons. Now, did you notice how the stakes get higher with each story? One out of 100, one out of 10, one out of two. One of his sons leaves, goes out into the world, and he gets terribly lost. And by the way, the word lost is one of the key words in all of these stories. It occurs eight times in its noun and verb forms. The religious leaders would have said, people are lost. And you know what? Jesus would have agreed completely. Forget fourth level, E-flight, 64th position. That's not how God thinks. We're either lost because we're away from him, which is a grief even to God, especially to God. Or we're found because we've come back, which is reason to throw the biggest party ever. Jesus would have agreed with the Pharisees that people are lost, but unlike the Pharisees, he knew that God loves people whether they're lost or found. And he loves finding them. And he's good at it. The rabbis had a saying, God rejoices over the downfall of the godless. So someone would do something and it's stupid and get in trouble. And the rabbis would say, God rejoices over the downfall of the godless. And when the Pharisees heard that, they nodded their heads in agreement. But Jesus emphatically shook his head in disagreement. That is not what his father is like. In these stories, Jesus adds a lot of color, more than usual. He gives us details. The lost son pulls a Louis Zamperini on his dad. He knows his dad doesn't want him to go, but he says, in effect, I hate my life with you, and I can't wait to get out of here. He doesn't care about his dad, doesn't care about his family. He sells his share of the farm out from underneath them, takes the cash, and then he takes off. Now, if you're a Pharisee listening to that story, you know exactly how the dad feels. He is madder than a wet hen. He's madder than a hornet, than a nest of hornets. And you know exactly what that dad would do. He would hold a kasatsa, a ceremony in which his son is declared dead. Not MIA, KIA. He's not missing. He's dead. And as far as that dad was concerned, his boy died, and and the relationship they'd had together died with him. Jesus, being the greatest storyteller ever, leaves the dad right there, right there, smacked in the face by disrespect. And he follows the son. And here's where the details come in. The son blows through his money in no time. He's out there partying, telling himself he should have done this long time ago, that this is the life. He knows it can't go on forever, but he'll worry about that when the time comes. And then one morning he wakes up with a hangover and discovers the time has come. Our, our modern translations say something like, in verse 13, he squandered his wealth. In the original language, it's he squandered his being. He thought he was spending money, 
He was spending himself. And then life got really bad, really fast. Circumstances went against him. Unemployment soared. His friends all laughed. Jesus said no one gave him anything. Not able to find a job, he did the last thing any self-respecting Jew would do. He went to work for a Gentile pig farmer. He sank so low that he wanted to eat the food that the pigs were eating. Now, Jesus has a reason for telling us all these details. And it's one that we might miss, but his hearers would have got. Feeding pigs was shameful for a Jew. The Mishnah said, none may rear swine anywhere. And cursed is the man who rears swine. Just hearing this part of the story would have made a Pharisee sick to his stomach. It was disgusting. And, and that Pharisee would be thinking, he got what he deserves. If he's going to act like a pig, he should live with the pigs. If I were a first century Jewish father and my son Joel, and I'll pick on him because he's the only one we gave a Hebrew name. So if my son Joel went to work for a pig farmer, I'd be mortified. I would be shamed. before, And this is a... This is a shame-based culture. I would be shamed before the entire community. People would look at me differently. They would call me a failure. They'd talk about me behind my back. And shaming one's father in that time and place was about the worst thing a person could do. The turning point of the story comes in verse 17. There's a lot of action afterwards, but the turning point's verse 17, when the son has a repentance moment. He comes to his senses, the NIV says, but literally, he comes to himself, to who he really is, the son of this kind and wonderful man, and decides to go back to his dad. He's got it in his head that his dad might, just might take him back as a slave on the family farm. So he, he comes up with a speech, and he rehearses his speech, hoping he can say just the right thing to blunt his dad's anger. Once he's got the speech memorized, he gets up, and in Greek, and I don't think this is an accident, he arises, the word that's routinely used of resurrection. See, this boy's coming back from the dead. And he starts off towards his father. Now, the last time we saw the father, his son was rejecting and disrespecting him. But now, as the son approaches, our thoughts return to him. What's he going to do? Every Pharisee knows what he's going to do. When that young man arrives, he'll turn his back on him, and he will say with his back turned, you're no son of mine. My son died, and everyone knows it. We held his funeral. You, whoever you are, go back to the pigs and live with your own kind. Now, the Pharisee knows this is what the father will say because this is what he would say and feel right in saying it, even feel obligated to say it. And he would say this because he knew that's what God would say. God is holy. He's righteous. He despises sinners. So imagine the Pharisee's surprise, dismay, really, at what Jesus does with the story. This is verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
Jesus has just pulled the theological rug out from under the Pharisees' feet. He tells them, you guys have it all wrong. This is what God is really like. He's a finder. He finds lost people, not so he can punish them or shame them, but so he can throw his divine arms around them and kiss them and welcome them home. This is what God is like. The son launches into his prepared speech. His dad doesn't even let him finish. No bargaining, no, you have to do better this time. He doesn't make him sign a contract. He takes him in, he brings him home and throws a party. Now, the Pharisees sitting there, remember, they're right there listening to this. Jesus telling this story because of what's just happened with them would have thought that was crazy. They believe that accepting people who do bad things takes away any motivation for them to change. They thought the only leverage they had over people was rejection. It's the only tool in their bag, the only tactic they knew for making people change. But Jesus knew people don't get better or holier because you reject them. Only being with God can make you better or holier. The religious leaders were waiting for people to clean themselves up and become worthy of salvation. Fortunately, God doesn't wait. He doesn't withhold his affection and love until people meet a certain standard. He pulls up his robes and he runs after them. In, in first century Israel, and just about everywhere else in the first century, men wore robes. If they needed to run, Guys don't know this because they don't wear dresses, but women, if you wore a long skirt or a dress, how is it to take off running in that? So if they had to run, they would pull their robe up and tie it between their legs above their knees. I had a, a friend from another culture who used to do this when we were playing sports. Pull that rope, that he called it a lungi, up and tie it so that he could move quickly. Old men didn't do that. It's unbecoming. It's really embarrassing. But Jesus has the Father in his story, who, remember, shows us what God is really like. Tie up his robe, not caring what anyone thinks, and run to his son. God doesn't force us into relationship with him. See, that would ruin everything that he wants for us. But he will help us choose a relationship with him, and we'll come running when we take our first step. God helps us come to him. Maybe you thought, well, one day I, got my, I came to my senses and I, I realized I came to God. God helped you. When the son in the story came to himself and rose from the dead and returned to his father, it was because his father was helping him. He helped him with remembered love and blessing, like Louis Zamperini's father helped him by giving him that money and showing him he was wanted. See, if God didn't help us, we wouldn't even think of coming to him. If you've come to God, it's because he's helped you. If you're inching toward him this morning, it's because he's helping you. He helps you think differently, informs your thoughts, brings people into your life, and he comes to you like the father in our story where you are. 
He doesn't demand, as the religious leaders did in Jesus' day, that you come to where he is first. He's helping you, and he will help you. He wants you, his child, with him and with his other children. Now, there is more to this story than we have time to go into this morning. If you want to think about this more deeply, come to Go Deep on Wednesday nights at Bigby Coffee, and we'll get into it. We'll look at the story in, in, in more than we were able to this morning. Or go to www.lockwoodchurch.org media and search for a sermon titled Party at My House, God, and listen to that, which deals with other aspects of the text. This morning, all I wanted to do was help us see what God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is really like. He's like a dad who takes back his son, could be his daughter, who runs to take back his son, who loves his son no matter what he's done, who helps him come home. There's this great scene back in um, the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. It's a, the 400 meter and there's a kid from Great Britain named Derek Redmond who's running with a chance to win a gold medal, which has been his lifelong dream. And he, he was in his stride, and he's looking good when his hamstring tore. And he went down. And then by a sheer, an act of sheer will, he got up in excruciating pain, and he starts hopping toward the finish line. Watch what happened next. That's him. I think he's in lane four. Got to go in there. Derek's father jumped down from the stands, ran past security guards who were trying to stop him. Because no one's going to stop him. Throws his arms around his son, and we couldn't hear it, but what he said to him was, come on, son, let's finish this together. Listen, the entire human race has pulled a hamstring, all of us. 
Only we're not in a 400 meter, but a marathon. And none of us has the strength to finish. But the father jumped down from the stands, put his arms around us through Jesus, and is helping us home. This is what the God and Father of Jesus Christ is like. If you're wondering whether he'll take you in, stop wondering. Get up and come home. All right, let's pray. God, our hearts are glad that you are just who you are. Just whom we've seen in Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us. We haven't deserved it. We could rehearse our speech and tell you all the bad things we've done. But you have taken us in. In the name of your son, Jesus, and we thank you. Lord, if somebody here this morning has just had their moment, are coming to themselves, we know you'll help them. Bring them home. In Jesus' name, amen.